I love my school psychologists and neuropsychologists who, you know, unfortunately, when you talk about dyslexia have become the gatekeepers for who gets the diagnosis and who doesn't. And yet they don't have enough awareness about how the differences that kids bring to the assessment process influence assessment outcomes. I did a talk at the International Neuropsych Society meeting in New York, and I talked about this issue of assessment and how it's impacted by culture, language variation, and socioeconomic status, and was shocked to find that it was news to almost everybody in the audience. Hello, and welcome to the Black and Dyslexic Podcast with Winifred A. Winston and LaDerek Horn the show that unapologetically focuses on helping Black and underrepresented minorities navigate the special education process. We want to help raise awareness in the Black and Brown community, remove the stigma about learning disabilities, and provide you access to professionals in the space of dyslexia and special education that you need to hear from. On today's episode, my co-host, LaDerek Horn, and I are joined by the amazing Julie Washington. Today, we're gonna have a candid conversation. We're gonna discuss why some black parents aren't able to successfully advocate for their child, why it's so important that we have black and brown providers, why we need black psychologists, black neuropsychologists and school counselors, and even touch on what they don't know. And finally, we're gonna wrap it up addressing the intersection of language, literacy and poverty and black and brown students. Today we have Dr. Julie Washington. Now, I normally don't read a whole entire bio, you guys, but listen up. I'm gonna read Dr. Washington's bio because it needs to be read. You need to hear what she is doing and what she has committed her work to. So Dr. Washington is a professor in the School of Education at the University of California, Irvine, UCI. She is a speech language pathologist and is a fellow of the American Speech Language Hearing Association. Dr. Washington directs the Learning Disabilities Research Innovation Hub funded by the National Institutes of Health, Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute on Child Health and Human Development. She is also the director of the Dialect, Poverty and Academic Success Lab at UCI. Currently, Dr. Washington's research is focused on the intersection of literacy, language variation, and poverty. In particular, her work focuses on understanding the role of cultural dialect in assessment, identification of reading disabilities in school-age African-American children, and on disentangling the relationship between language production and comprehension on development of reading and early language skills for children growing up in poverty. Did you get that? <laughs> okay. She's an awesome person. She got it all. Yes, yes. So welcome, Dr. Washington. That was a mouthful, but I was going to get it out. Thank you. And it made me tired listening to it. <laughs> I don't care. I want everybody to know. <laughs> it's like I'm doing so much. Yes. We're not getting research on what matters and what impacts us. So this is necessary. Yep, it is. And I'm glad you're doing it. This podcast was a surprise to me when I heard from you, and I'm happy to be here. Oh, yes, I'm excited. And that's what we want to do. We want to raise awareness. We want to remove the stigma in the black and brown communities. 
And we, we want to have those uncomfortable, unfiltered conversations that as a community, we are not having so that we can educate ourselves and, and do better, right? I think I heard you mention, and, I, and I've, I've gotten this a lot too, that dyslexia is a wealthy white learning disability. Yeah. Right, and that's just not the case. No, it's not, but it looks like it on paper. Yep, it looks like <laughs> it online. Yes, it does. And you know, some of that is about how we diagnose it and what most, at least poor black kids are in public schools. And there's not a lot of focus on this particular diagnosis with that population of students. And some of it is, you know, for many of the reasons that we can identify about just not being equitable. But the other thing is that in a population of kids for whom eight out of 10 are struggling with reading, who has dyslexia? And that's one of the areas of focus in our hub. Um, the one that's funded by NIH is identifying reading disabilities in a population of students for whom reading is a struggle for almost every single child. Which ones have dyslexia and why is it important for us to be able to identify it? I mean, that's some of the big, those are some of the big questions we have. How do we identify it? when a lot of kids are struggling and why is it important? Because that's how you get the intervention. You know, in the absence of that designation, you get business as usual in the classroom. And we know from every child with dyslexia, that's not enough. It's just not enough. No, it's not, it's not. Can you talk about the assessments? Because I was talking to a psychologist and he was trying to tell me which assessment was less, less culturally biased. Yeah. Right. And he was like this one here. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, everywhere you turn, there's an inequity and an imbalance and, and this bias, even in trying right. to assess children. That's right. You know, the thing is, there's no such thing as a perfect assessment. So all assessments have some kind of issue. But when you come to the assessment process and you have a different culture, a different linguistic system, and lower socioeconomic status, that is a recipe for misdiagnosis. It just is. And, you know, the interesting thing is I love my school psychologists and neuropsychologists who, you know, unfortunately, when you talk about dyslexia, have become the gatekeepers for who gets the diagnosis and who doesn't. And yet they don't have enough awareness about how the differences that kids bring to the assessment process influence assessment outcomes. I did a talk at the International Neuropsych Society meeting in New York, and I talked about this issue of assessment and how it's impacted by culture, language variation, and socioeconomic status, and was shocked to find that it was news to almost everybody in the audience. Wow. And these are wow. practicing neuropsychologists who you know, really believe in the assessments that they give, that these assessments are really helping them to identify in a way that is objective. And yet there's nothing objective about something that is influenced by your experiences, your language use, and the culture that you bring to the um, assessment process. And so some of this getting the word out to different 
stakeholders, they're in that group. You know, it was the day that I realized I never even thought of neuropsychology and school psychology as an audience that I needed to be talking to until that day. And I realized, boy, this is a really important group to get this message out to because it is they who will diagnose and, and you know, identify. And that is so true. So in our journey and trying to find my daughter help, I switched careers and I became director of admissions of a private dyslexia school. Because I thought, why all the people who are getting help don't look like me? How do I navigate this system? Where are the contacts? Why do they know everything and I don't? And I've been in education. I worked as an administrator for my local school district. I was a teacher briefly, high school teacher briefly. I say that because it was a rough two years, right? I went in as a CTE teacher. But as director of admissions, I got to review reports from folks all over, right? Mm -hmm. And I would read a report of a little black boy and the verbiage, the language used to describe his behavior, the same behavior that I'd see in a report for a little white boy, right? And I thought, oh, wow, this is a whole lot more than what I thought and the conversations that even the staff would have. And so I found myself in a very uncomfortable spot because I said, wait a minute, what I'm seeing, is this correct? And how do I speak up? Like, what do I say? Because I see it as clear as day. And I'm looking at evaluations and reading them every day. And I'm not just glancing over because I'm new in this role. I'm really trying to understand, you know, I'm really trying to grasp what I'm reading, but that stuck out to me immediately. Mm -hmm. To me immediately, that the language, the description of behavior and yeah. constantly seeing emotionally disturbed, but then seeing hyperactivity over here, ADHD over here to describe a certain behavior and knowing that with a certain diagnosis, no school's going to look at you. Yeah. You know, that's so pervasive and the misdiagnosis or absence of diagnosis issues are huge and really costly for kids and for the education system. You know, I'm at UC Irvine now, but before that I was at Georgia state in Atlanta. And one of the things that I used to do when I was in Atlanta was there would be parents who were, a lot of times they were secretaries and a couple times students who had kids who were struggling in school and they would come and I would go to their IEPs and advocate on behalf of their kids. And the last IEP that I went to was for a black boy in fourth grade who had dyscalculia, dysgraphia, could read because his grandparents taught him to read, but I could see that his language skills eventually, as reading got more complex and abstract, that it wasn't going to be able to support his reading skills. So you could see he was struggling so much with these areas that we know fit into the SLD, the Specific Learning Dis Disabilities category. And he was so nice, which is how he got to fourth grade without being identified. He was nice. He was quiet. They, oh, he's so sweet. I'm like, whatever. He can't write and he can't do math. Let's talk about that. But still, even with this kid, they tried to give him an ADD diagnosis because he was not attentive, not the writing problem, not the math problem. They went straight for something they could blame him for. And it took five IEP meetings to get that boy an SLD diagnosis. And mm -hmm. I had to fight. 
and the parents got better and better and the grandparents came to the meetings, got better and better at advocating for him. So he ultimately ended up with the diagnosis, but it was after I got an attitude in a meeting and said, unacceptable, absolutely unacceptable. But I walked away from that meeting thinking, like I do many meetings, what happens when I'm not there? Yep. What happens when the parent shows up and the parent is outnumbered, you know, eight to one, because there's the one parent, sometimes two, and then there's the classroom teacher, there's a speech pathologist, there's the psychologist, there's the special ed, there's all these different people, and then there's just you. And so one of the things that I am really interested in is thinking about developing a network of parent advocates who are black and brown, who understand the rules. You didn't understand the rules. You didn't know what you should be looking for, what you should be asking for. You know what? We can change that. That can be changed. And, you know, thinking about how to do this, because we're talking about in the case of boys like this and the kids you're talking about, low expectations, covert racism, a structural context that does not work with kids, but actually works against them. And we're the ones who can change that. And we have to do it in our community. And does that mean that we're letting other people off the hook? No, but I am all about self-determination and making sure that we are getting our kids what they need and then educating the larger community at the same time. Because that's that's what, the kind of things you're talking about shouldn't be true, but they are. That's what, with our nonprofit dyslexia advocation, we help parents offset the cost of advocacy services, specialized tutoring, and the evaluations, right? Because when my daughter was diagnosed in a matter of three days, I was told I needed $22,000 to help her, right? Later, when I found out about the whole get an attorney, I left there crying because he says, stop the tutoring. Well, we were doing some of the most expensive tutoring because I didn't know. It was one place. I said, oh, this will help her. We went there. And it was like, stop the tutoring so I could pay him the retainer. So we might win, right? Might win what? And I just did not know. I was clueless. And I said, I don't want another parent to feel how I felt. And I always say I had privilege in the IEP meeting because I worked as an administrator for the school district. I had hard conversations with principals in my previous role, right? So I was in the IEP meeting. Oh, well, dyslexia is a very general term, Winifred. Well, according to the book right here, the school will say dyslexia is a general term. And da, 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 I was reading out of the book. I would stop them mid-sentence. I'm sorry, I don't do acronyms and teacher talk. Could you explain that to me? And I was very comfortable, right? Saying like, I don't understand. You explain this to me. And I knew I could read the body language. Okay, they're not telling me something. She lying over here. Like I could feel the room. I still left crying in my car feeling like I did not fight enough for my daughter and I still didn't get what, what she needed, right? Because we never even got to the, to the goals. I could read them and say, oh, this is crap, but I didn't know how to tell them to fix it. And I thought, I don't want another parent to experience this. And while I was advocating with DD, I would get a lot of parents who would hit me up on the side, right? Black parents, because they didn't feel comfortable. It wasn't a comfortable space where they felt safe sharing. I don't know. I don't understand. And, and not always low-income parents either. Nope. Black educated parents with money, you know, who could access the resources but still didn't quite understand. And I said, you know what? 
I'm going to focus on helping black and brown parents understand and navigate this space. So I try to find providers of color. Like I absolutely try to find providers of color who can make parents feel comfortable and safe. I had a parent tell me, she says, Winifred, I've been fighting for my daughter since kindergarten. I made one phone call to you. She said, and you connected me with the tutor. I'm not even going to tell you that a tutor was charging her $140 and seeing her daughter twice a month for dyslexia intervention. That's unacceptable. She said, you got me a tutor and this advocate, she's helping me and she knows what she's talking about. She said, I'm scared. I said, what are you scared of? She said, it feels surreal. It don't feel real. I made one phone call and got connected to you. And now I'm surrounded by people who know what they're talking about, who's going to help my baby. She said, and the tutor you got, she said, within two hours of him working with my daughter, I saw that he got to know her as a learner more than the school have this entire school year. Mm-hmm. So it is necessary and it is so needed. Well, and one of the things I do want to say is that this is a common refrain for parents of all kids with dyslexia, regardless of their race and ethnicity. But for Black parents, there's an extra layer. So there's what everybody gets and what everybody is frustrated about. And then there's what you get on top of that. Mm-hmm. And so it's like a double whammy. And, you know, the idea that she was so grateful and so surprised, she should have been able to expect that she could make one phone call and get the right person, but she couldn't expect that because it didn't really exist before that. And I'm pretty well educated, do a lot of work in this area. I have never been to, I have a son who has an IEP. He's an adult now, but he had an IEP. My first rule of thumb, never go to an IEP alone. Yep. I don't care if you have to go next door and get Granny Gertie. She doesn't even have to know anything. She just has to be the one who cares about you and your kid. And so that somebody else is listening when they say something and it's like, wait a minute, what? And so even with my background, I never went to an IEP alone with my son. I called one of my friends and said, I have an IEP on this day. Can you come? And I always had someone with me. Just that's emotional support. Somebody to take notes, to hear what you don't hear, because sometimes you zone out because all they're talking about is the negative. But the other thing is that for parents, when you go in there, you are thinking with your heart because this is your baby. You need somebody else to be in there and be listening with their ears and with their brains and not just their hearts. When I go in there, I'm not Dr. Washington. I am Miles's mother. And when I go in there, I am like fired up just like you are when you go in. And when you're like that, you miss things. But what I do understand is that parents are in control. And most Black parents don't understand that in a way that many white parents do. You are in charge. When you walk into a meeting, I remember going into an IEP once, and I don't know who she thought she was talking to, but the woman who was running the meeting pulled out this list and passed it around and said, this is today's agenda. This is what we will be talking about. And my response was, thank you for sharing, but what we will actually be talking about is this. And it changed the whole meeting. But it was because I understood she was not in charge. This is my meeting. This is my son. You're responding to me. I'm not responding to you. And when we understand that as parents and take some of our power back, power we might not have known we had, so it's not even taking it back, it's owning it, then we can be very powerful. 
That's what I see with decoding dyslexia. For all the things that they may be, one of the things they are is a powerful parent advocacy group who has figured out in a grassroots way how to make things happen. We can do the same thing. Yep. And we did here, here in Maryland, we got the Right to Read Act. And I was instrumental in that. And let me tell you, I tell people all the time. Times 50. Yes. And let me tell you, this is the thing I tell people. I'm not afraid to say I don't understand or I don't know. They told me where to come. I go. They tell me where to show up. I go. They said, well, make calls and appointments with your legislators. I said, okay. So then we did the advocacy. We did the panel. I came over to the group. I said, well, what am I supposed to say in that meeting? Y'all come with me. So I had like four or five people deep, right? And then they said, well, Winifred, um, well, the first year we didn't pass, right? And I was talking to a woman, again, just trying to find out how to advocate for my daughter. And she says that I didn't notice that I know she was an attorney and I knew she worked for a law firm, but I didn't really know what she did. Lo and behold, she says, yeah, well, you know, we do some advocacy work and, you know, my firm, we talk to nonprofits at no cost all the time. I said, oh, okay, well, you should come talk to DD. You should come talk to us. Not knowing who this woman was. She was one of the top lobbyists in the state of Maryland. Wow. When, when I coordinated this event, Everybody's like, wow, how did you do this? Whenever, how did you do it? I said, well, she said she speaks to nonprofits. I told her to come speak to us. And we had other folks from other reading and literacy organizations show up at this meeting. And we learned some things that we would not have learned about how to make this happen by way of who knows who, who's married to who, who has the maiden name versus the married name and who went to school with this per like stuff we would not have known. In hindsight, looking back, that was a big deal. But when I was doing it, all I knew is I'm advocating. This woman says she can help us. We got to get this bill to pass next year. Ask me to read the bill. Nope, that's not my area of expertise. What you need me to do? Like, like, what else can I do? But I showed up even when I was in an uncomfortable space and didn't really quite understand what was going on. I showed up. And a lot of times we don't show up when we feel uncomfortable to say, I don't know. This is overwhelming. I don't write policy. I don't understand these things. Well, where can you fit in? What are you good at? Yep. Congratulations. <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Dr. Washington. Yes. Um, as a poet, as a wordsmith, as an advocate for people with disabilities, I focus a lot on, on language. And something that has occurred to me, and I've been thinking about it over the years, and I think I've voiced it publicly just a few times, but I wanted to run this by you because I, I think it's in line with your work and maybe past comments you've made. But I was initially diagnosed, I was nine years old in the third grade. I had struggled you know, didn't know my alphabet, didn't know any of that, was given initially the label of being neurologically impaired. Last time I got an assessment done, I'm 25 years old. I got specific learning disability. The person doing the test on the side says, you know, you can also call yourself dyslexic if you want, but it was specific learning disability and all the documentation. And I, in working in this field and connecting with different nonprofits, you know, I've, I've seen the word dyslexia used in spaces you know, there are plenty of times when I've been on stage, or I've worked with groups to talk to young people, and I've used the word learning disability and used it from a place of empowerment, because I actually grew up in a lot of silence around my, you know, about how my mind worked. Um, started really using the, le- the words learning disability when I was in college, when I was a part of a great support program. Um, but I, I noticed that there were people who were either, no, no, we're dyslexic, or we learn differently. Um and so I'm just I'm just curious because it almost feels to me as if there is this division happening within the LD community where 
uh, it feels very much in the way that like autism, the, the way Asperger's is used is sort of like a, a higher level uh, you know, in, in that spectrum that dyslexia is being used in a similar way. Have you noticed any of that, that just that use of language and, and you know, who's... Oh, yeah. yeah, and, you know, that happens, every, you know, sort of historically in different spaces. You start out calling things one thing and then it evolves over time. And, you know, this movement away from learning disabilities um, is sort of, and I think an acknowledgement of what the research is telling us about LD, and it is that the LD brain is different right? and that you learn differently. And I think moving away from the disability term has been really important to that community. The learning disability piece, of course, is in the special ed law. And it's, as you said, SLD, specific learning disability, he said, but you can call yourself dyslexic <laughs> right. because the term dyslexic does not appear in that law. It's just yeah. specific learning disability. So that's sort of like the formal way of talking about it. But within the community, it's learning differences and dyslexia and really calling it out specifically what you're having difficulty with, which is what dyslexia does. I remember when I was a student and we used to talk about LD. And I used to refer to LD as the wastebasket term. If they couldn't figure out who you were and where you fit, they just called you LD. Right. You know? And it has become better defined than that. And what do I think about the term learning differences? Well, I am a true believer that you should be called what you want to be called. Yes, and I and agree. So, <laughs> and I agree. And so, I, I think it's. I think we all have the right to yep. define ourselves in, in exactly. whatever way we want. Yep. Exactly. Whatever you want me to call you, I'm going to call you that because that's your right. Yeah. And so I think this movement toward learning differences is an attempt to, I think, move away from the idea that someone who is having difficulty learning to read, who has dyslexia is um, disordered or pathologized in some way. This is not a pathology. It's a difference in the way that my brain approaches text. And that's what people are trying to get across. And I think in terms of your own like self-concept, if being called learning, uh, learning disabled is okay with you and it doesn't make you feel any kind of way, then you should call yourself that. But if, you're, if you feel better about being called having LD stand for learning difference, then you should be that too. You should be whatever you want to be. You know, terminology matters. Semantics matter. In my own work, I study dialect. And um, I wrote a piece recently with Mark Seidenberg in American Educator. It's the summer issue. So it just came out about a month ago. And one of the things we talk about in there, Lederic, is terminology. There's a whole section on terminology because the way you call people is the way you view people, right? And so that those semantics really matter because we're really trying to move away in my own work from the discussion of dialect as being non-standard. It's yeah. a variety of English, just like general American English is. There is no standard or non-standard. There's no you're on top, I'm on the bottom. There's a continuum of language used by humans and on that continuum are dialects and languages. And so we're trying to change the terminology because the terminology that you use about people as humans, unfortunately, we conflate the person with the term. So instead of seeing you as Lederic, the black man, 
you're Lederic, the learning disabled guy. Right, and right. so we start to conflate who you are with what that label is. And so I think that's the reason people are making that shift. Labels really matter. They matter a lot. So I can see why people moved away from it, but it is a little fervent, the move away from it, where people are just like, no, you can't use that term. It's like, you know what? It's good. Learning disabilities is the way we talk about it from a legal standpoint. But yeah. if we're talking about you as an individual and you would prefer to be called different rather than disabled, I will always honor that. And that's and that's always the way that I have approached it. I said, you know, you can define yourself uh, in whatever way feels true to you. Right. And, you know, and I and I talk about the, the different labels and how I've carried them over the years. But the, the piece of advice that I always say is, but eventually this young person is going to end up in the adult world and whether it's advocating for supports at a post-secondary education institution or on your job, at some point the ADA comes in effect and that's the Americans with Disability Act, you know? Exactly. And so, you know, being comfortable on some degree, even if it's just a, a legal acknowledgement that this is the, the label that gives you those civil rights, those protections, I think you know, it's that important. Is, that is such a good point And one, we don't hear enough, but I do see enough people, student, because I'm in the university setting, yeah. students who are black and brown who are unwilling to ask for the support they need. Mm -hmm. Because along the way, that learning disability or speech and language impairment has something they have come to feel ashamed about instead of recognizing that it means that you have a different learning style that needs different learning supports. And I am always, gosh, in the university setting, I am so struck by when I was at the University of Wisconsin and I would get I, at first class, if you need um, support or accommodation in the class, please come see me within the first two weeks with your letter so that we can talk about what support you need. At Wisconsin, that line was all the way to the back of the auditorium, okay. standing in front of the podium, telling me what they needed. Then I moved to Georgia State, which is a minority serving institution. I was there for eight years before anybody ever came to the podium and told me what they needed. And then I finally got a couple people who were black who told me what they needed. But in all these years of doing this work, I find that we are the least likely to ask for those supports, despite the fact that with them, we will succeed in an environment that is really stressing the system that we're having the most difficulty with. I am asking you to read, you know, three chapters a week and you have dyslexia. You need support. Yeah. And, and it goes so, back to K-12 because it I look at the, the school system where I work. Right. I'm here in Baltimore City, Maryland. Nobody wanted to say they had an IEP until it was summer. And they would get an internship at one of the medical centers, right? Oh, I got an IEP, Miss Winston, Miss Winston, I got one. Okay. I'm like, oh, you, you do? What? Then that summer, I taught in a more affluent district, a program for 11th graders and 12th graders who had learning disabilities, right? It was a summer program to teach them self-advocacy, college reading, writing, math, tech, and the arts, full of white kids. Every yep. Friday, we took them to the universities through the support center. I did an icebreaker, right? And um, I'm teaching career readiness. The last thing I was expecting for a kid to raise their hand and say, I took my medicine this, this morning, Ms. Winston, because this program is very important to my mom and I want to be on my best behavior. 
So I brought in guest speakers at the end of the program, a young little white girl raised her hand and say, oh, I wish I would have learned coping strategies because now I'm so dependent on medication. I wish my mom would have started me on medication later. I'm like, this is not happening when I'm at the public school because of that stigma of being dumped in special right. education, that catch all. And what I would have to tell parents now is, Ms. Winston, I don't want another label. I said, look here, specific learning disability, it didn't help me figure out what was going on with my daughter. I was still confused. When I heard the word dyslexia, I could research. It led me to understand the five components of reading. It led me to understand structured literacy is what's going to help her. I needed that label. I said, think about the men you dated. Okay, when K-12 is over, did, was he ADHD or dyslexic? You don't even know. It doesn't follow them. They have to self-advocate after that. Let's talk about that permanent record. There is no such no. thing as a permanent record, no. parents. No such thing. I said, do you want no such thing? <laughs> what label do you want? I said, because they're going to label them defiant. They're going to label them lazy. They're going to label them, you know, something else. I said, well, let's be real. Your child might be labeled inmate one, two, three, four, five. I said, so which label do you want? The right label or the wrong one? I said, so we need this right now so you can educate yourself, so you can understand what their strengths are, what their struggles are, and you can successfully advocate for them. My daughter, she's 11, and I told her we were watching TV, and Octavia Spencer was on the screen. I said, Moo, come here, look at this. What's special about her? I said, um, well, we was watching um, Hidden Figures, right? And my daughter's like, what's special? I said, uh, she's dyslexic. My daughter said... <sighs> Mommy, I go to school with hundreds of dyslexics. There's nothing special about her. She has trouble in a, a certain subject area, Ma. And I was just like, yes, I'm doing a good job because right. her environment, her school, they build them up like that. So and they tell her happens, it's okay. What happens when you don't go to that school? Exactly. And what happens when you don't have a parent who can read like you can? You know, one of the things we know from research is where there are kids who have trouble with reading, there are also first degree relatives who are having trouble with reading. Often it's your parents, but your first degree relatives are your parents, your siblings, your first cousins, your grandparents, your aunts and uncles. In that group, we will find more people who are having trouble with reading. And so not only do we need to be advocating for parents who have what you have, the tenacity, the reading ability, and the willingness to speak up. But we need to activate the village for the parents who can't do it. My daughter's and father activate. never identified, went through yeah. school. When he saw her IEP, he got very emotional. He said, That's everything I'm reading here is me. He said, why didn't I get this help? He said, why didn't I get this help? And I look at him and I'm like, wow. And, and a lot of other adults who reach out to me on Instagram, my barber, well, COVID got all this hair going on here, but I used to go to the barbershop. <laughs> he comes to me after. He says, Winifred, I know the girl who referred you here teaches at a dyslexia school too, but you come in here with all kind of energy about dyslexia. He says, and I know you went to that big conference because I stayed in the Airbnb. I didn't stay in the hotel. So everybody heard about me going to IDA alone by myself for this conference. And he said, I just want to tell you, he said, I'm dyslexic. I said, you are? He said, yeah. He said, um, I never tell anybody. He said, but you just always come in here with all this energy. He said, um, I taught myself. He said, I use a lot of assistive technology. He said, I still don't read very well, but I looked up some successful folks and it just inspired me. He said, but I feel like, and this is a young black man. He had to be in his mid thirties. 
he don't know me other than coming in to get my hair cut. And he doesn't even cut my hair. He says, I think I could have been further along in life. He said, I have my CDL. He said, when I opened up this barbershop, I felt like I, I kind of made it. He said, and I see my daughter struggling and I don't even know how to help her. He said, but I, as a black young man to tell, he says, I feel like I could have been further along in life. That's right. That, that just stuck with me. And I thought, oh my gosh, there's so many more like him. Well, where would your daughter be if you were the first degree relative who had dyslexia? If it wasn't her dad, it was you. I think she, I might she got be, it on both sides, right? Yes. Well, she, she has the ADHD because I didn't even know I was ADHD until her identification. But I've never known how to spell. You know, I had told, to. I could have told you you were ADHD about ten minutes ago. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The psychologist friend of mine. I said, read this report. They say she's ADHD. I don't believe that. It's a medical code. She's black. They just want insurance to pay. She says. Well, you know, sometimes when the parent has it, you know, you don't see it. And I left that meeting. What is she trying to say? Yeah. But I think I would have been, I worked really hard, just like my daughter. I worked really hard. And I remember now in hindsight, I remember some struggles in high school. I definitely remember some struggles in college. I've never, I don't know how to spell to save my life. I don't know sounds uh, the, that letters make. I've never known them. In third grade, I was tired of not being able to read all the words. And I had an older cousin who's gifted and I wanted to be just like her. And I just started reading chapter books, Sweet Valley High, Fourth Grade Celebrity. I just started reading and I would read the words around the words, you know, but I might be there, but I worked so hard and I wasn't struggling. I was always in advanced classes, so I would not have gotten caught. Now, my daughter, she has double deficit dyslexia. She's very polite. She's a very good student. Like the, the little boy you talked about, she's very nice. She would have been passed over. Yeah. But I, I definitely believe there's something going on there because I couldn't pronounce the school you're at. We had to practice that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you see, you have two parents who, one who really struggles, one who struggled and overcame some of it, but that's what our, that's what families look like. And so I'm like, when I say activate the village, I mean the people like Lederick and you who know what to do, you're the ones who help the kids whose parents don't know what to do. Every parent needs that. Dr. Washington, it's, it's like the number one, I can always depend on it. And if, if I do a Q&A for a group of educators, they always talk about, well, what about that parent, right? Like there's a parent and we think their kid maybe needs to get testing. I think they have this, like, I was just just did a uh, presentation and there was a, a track coach. And I ran track and cross country in high school and my father was a track coach. And uh, he said, you know, he had a freshman athlete and this guy is remarkable and he can tell he's gonna go scholarship to college, but there's something going on with his learning. And uh, everybody knows the father and he's really you know, famous in that community, but they're all a little scared to go up to him and say, hey, I think your kid needs some sort of evaluation. What if there is that parent that you know, and my advice is always like, yes, you know, you have to understand where that reluctancy comes from. It's you right. probably have someone who's struggled with learning themselves. You're basically telling them that your child is going to go through the same thing. I say the earnest is on the school. You know, you've got to explain to them what the benefits are because they may not see it. And then I've also said that 
some of this reluctancy actually may be an evaluation of the quality of your services, right? Like they may actually know that opening their child up to getting that diagnosis and special aid actually may not be the best thing for them. But, you know, if it's if it's the village that needs to be activated or if it's educators who are listening into this, what what, what do you say to help, you know, to reach those parents who are maybe not, you know, who are on the fence or just not interested in having their child evaluated? Well, first of all, you can't make parents do anything they don't want to do. But you can educate them about what it is you're talking about. You know, he's struggling with this. And I think, you know, in my own experience, I've found that many times when I do that, parents admit that they were struggling too, just like Winifred just did, where it's like, you know, I have trouble with that as well. But the reality is that that comment I made earlier about parents being in control, that's one of the things parents need to understand. Special ed is not a prison. It is completely under your control. You control them getting in and damn it, you control them getting out. When you decide that, you know, what are we doing right now? Then you also control that piece. You have control over what happens in special ed. My son who was in special ed, I know the people at the school still hate me. I'm probably on the wall of parents we hope we never see again because they weren't um, meeting the, his IEP. In fact, they were punishing him for his IEP, for his disability. He has ADHD, so he gets detention because he's not paying attention. Are you kidding me? You're punishing him for his disability. So they keep arguing with me. Hey, I know the law. That's the other thing. Educate yourself. Know what you're talking about. So they said, well, you know, we will have a meeting in another, in, you know, three months. I was like, Mm-mm, next week. And we're having an IEP every Friday. That's what I said, because I'm in charge. We had an IEP every Friday for three months until they got it. And then they started paying attention. But I had to go in there and exercise my rights as a parent. Parents have a lot of rights. And there are a lot of parents who... um really don't want to see their kids in special ed. They're afraid of them being labeled. They're afraid of that that report that's going to follow you till you're 97, which I have never seen happen. You know, that permanent record, no such thing as a permanent record. In fact, the university doesn't even have to know about that record unless you tell them. This is all under your control as a parent. And so that's one of the things that I think is really important to say I also think it's important. One of the ways that I get parents involved in things is I present to every parent. So Mm -hmm. I do something at the school and I talk about the whole system and what it means. And the parent who was reluctant now understands the process because a lot of it, I think, is lack of understanding, fear, not having great interactions with the school themselves as students. And now they're passing that on to their student. The thing is, if you know better, you'll do better. And so parents need to know so that they know what to do and they know what's going to happen. I had a colleague at Georgia State that I admire so much. I really admired this woman. She has a set of twin boys and an older girl. When I tell you those kids were in three different schools, getting 900 different services, whatever they needed. She saw like what one kid was struggling with. And it's like, how do I get help for this? She's out there finding it finds the perfect school for him, even though his twin is going somewhere else and the older sister's going somewhere else. And, you know, their needs were met. And But what she taught them along the way was how to advocate for themselves. So there's one thing about parent advocacy, but as a university professor, 
You need to teach your student to advocate for him or herself before they ever show up at a university so that when they need something, they will come ask for it and they will ask for it in a timely way. And I can't stress that enough because those are the kids who succeed. The ones who are willing to come to you and say, I'm having trouble with this. I need help with this and then go for it. And so, you know, for parents, a lot of it is education. A lot of it is their own history. And in the case of kids who are athletes, the parent thinks, you know, he's an athlete, he's going to get a scholarship. But yeah, what if he loses it because he can't read? Right. Or what happens when he finishes playing sports and his inability to read now influences his ability to work? I mean, you're not just preparing him for the sport. You're preparing him for life beyond the sport and life until he dies. And, you know, that's all really important. So for me, it's about educating parents, about having the conversation with them. A lot of times you have parents who really push back. I once said to a parent, I even shocked myself. She just kept it up. And I said, get out of the way. Mm. You are in the way. Yes. Your son needs this. And she was like, I can't believe you said that to me. I said, well, it's out there now. And she got out of the way and her son got what he needed. Because as a parent, I don't believe that there are parents, unless they are mentally ill, who do not want the best for their kids. You convince them that it's the best for them, you can help move them along. And that's why it's important that we have providers of color, because you could say that to her. Yep. Right. And she could respond like some of the things that I say to parents, like when I told that parent, let's be real. He may be labeled inmate one, two, three, four, five. Like, come on. Like we can say that to each other. And it's it's not like, oh, well, what do you you know, they receive it. Oh, well, gosh, you getting she she mean, wait a minute. Maybe I really am in the way. She just told me about myself. Culturally, Mm -hmm. we can do that. They can't do it. And then some of them won't speak up like they won't speak up. And then it's not well received. I say most of the parents are a product of a failed system. And where we are, a lot of Baltimoreans don't leave Baltimore. So they went to the school. You know, they graduated from that school. And so the parents are a product of a failed special education system. And so we get a lot of parents that don't trust. And we think about that as it relates to parents and kids. But as a university professor, I also know that just because you made it to the university doesn't mean you escape the effects of the achievement gap that those students come to college and they're still struggling with things. And the student who is taught to advocate is the student who will come to you and say, this is hard for me, I need support. And there is not a time when I will not give that support, but you need to come ask me for it. And that's when a lot of adults I talk to, that's when they get identified in college because that executive function is all over the place, the demands, the workload, the reading, the required reading, and that's when they get caught. And that's when, flashback to me, my professor, he didn't know. He was like, I don't understand. You sit in the front, you answer the questions, you do all the assignments. I don't understand why you can't do well on these tests. Why we didn't know I had working memory issues. We didn't know that then, right? And so in college, now you're saying you didn't advocate, learn to advocate for yourself in K-12, you had an IEP. I mean, I, I talked to parents who, I had one parent whose kiddo is going to high school and she said, oh, she's had an IEP since kindergarten. I said, what's the primary diagnosis? What? What are you talking about, Miss Winston? I said, what's the primary diagnosis? Look on the first, second page. You don't know what the primary diagnosis is. So I don't know what that child, I know that they weren't getting what they needed. And now you're in college and you're supposed to be able to advocate for yourself and to speak up and ask for help when you never did it before. 
Well, you know what? The last time I had a parent say exactly what that parent said to you, he also, I stood there and looked at him like, I said, so what's the primary diagnosis? I don't know. I said, well, what do they say he's having difficulty with? And it was like one, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000. He said, I can't read either. And so I don't know what the diagnosis was. I was like, whoa. And I was honored that he would say it to me, but pissed off that nobody in that meeting knew it. And so here he is in school advocating for his son to get services for something he also is struggling with. And, you know, I ended up interacting with this family. There were four men in the house, the grandfather, the father, and two sons, and nobody could read. Mm. And I was like, wow. And so this is a man who understood that his son needed support, got the IEP because that's what we told him to do but couldn't do anything beyond that because he didn't have the skills either. Somebody should have been in that meeting with him. Somebody should have noticed. Somebody should have made sure that the family was engaged, but that didn't happen. That's why groups like yours are so important. You know, as a black woman who has black children who are struggling, when you see somebody else struggling, you go for what, you know, what's going on with you? How can I help you? And in this man's case, I was like, whoa, you know? And I was glad that he admitted it. And then another black parent whose daughter that I was working with, I'm a speech pathologist. We were doing language intervention. And um, I was talking about how it tends to run in families when people are having trouble with reading. She said, you know, that really resonated with me because my daughter can't read and neither can I. And this was a parent that the principal was complaining about she never returns notes when we send them home. Yeah, of course not. Yeah, of course not. She never does this. She never does that. And he's like railing on her really judgmental about who she is as a parent. And so we were talking and I said, do you mind if I tell Mr. Horn that? And she she said, no. And when I told him he was so embarrassed and Mm -hmm. so upset and I was like, do not judge parents. Do not judge them. She was doing the best she could for her child. And so, I don't know. I'm just like, there's so much work to do. Yeah. You know, Dr. Washington, it was when Winifred initially was talking about putting this podcast together and, you know, was just, it's going to be black and dyslexic. And that's just how it is. She got definite pushback, you know, on social media and, you know, showed us, showed me and a few of of our other colleagues uh, the comments and, you know, we, I think we've just decided to, to sojourn her on um, because we definitely feel like there is a need, right? That the intersectionality of these two identities, of these two, what can be forms of oppression um, really need to be addressed. And, and unfortunately to just say dyslexia is not getting to all the diversity of the dyslexic community and the dyslexic experience. And there's certainly, I think, a definite need, you know, for a conversation to go directly to Black people. I just think, you know, we're never included in the conversation from the outset, which is something I say a lot. Not a part of the narrative, the dominant narrative. No. And then when you get the answer, you try to retrofit it to the Black community, and then you're surprised that it doesn't work. Why didn't you include us on the front end to make sure that whatever solution you came up with also included us. And so, yeah, I do think that, and you know, the thing about the comments, 
I did an article for The Atlantic a few years back. And one of my colleagues said, what did the comments say? And my response was absolutely true. I have no idea because I don't give a damn. I don't care. (laughs) Because people who need to hear that message will accept it and absorb it. And the people who are hating on the message were never going to listen to it anyway. So I don't actually care what they have to say. I never read the comments. for. I don't read the comments for anything. I don't care. I know that the people who need to hear the message and who need to have the information are going to absorb it. And those who weren't, aren't going to anyway. And I know that I'm not going to reach them. And you know what? I don't really care. I care about the people who need to know. Teachers need to know. Parents need to know. And, you know, the community needs to know in ways that will support kids. I don't get into arguments about, you know, political things, because when adults start fighting about politics, kids get hurt. Right. When adults fight all yep. oh, the reading wars, anytime there's a war, the little people get hurt. So I'm not interested in any of that. I just want to see things change. And I want to be a part of that change. That's all. Oh, that is that is just that nailed it right there. That just sealed it. I just have one more question for you, Dr. Okay. Washington. I'm going to get one in here from um, from Jeanette Parrott Gaffney. She's the founder of Literacy Without Limits. She wants to know, what practical resources do you recommend for teachers, reading specialists, private tutors who want to be more intentional about addressing the needs of African-American dialect speakers? You know, actually, that's what that American Educator article is about. Okay. It, it has six strategies that teachers can use. It's summer 2021. So it's available online for free, not behind a paywall, like most research is. Uh, And so, and you know, a lot of it is about teachers educating themselves and understanding what they're looking at. Before I was talking to you, I was talking to a group of students at Georgia State in an education class. And I heard people using words like incorrect improper, ungrammatical to talk about the language that African-American kids bring to school. That's that thing, Lederic, about semantics matter. When you tell me that what I'm doing is improper, you are talking about my whole community because guess what? Everybody else in the community is doing it as well. These are differences. They are not disorders. And that was that thing about disability versus difference. This is a difference in the way that kids are using language We know that language and literacy are inextricably tied. So if you are going to teach kids to read who are Black and using dialect, you have got to understand the dialect. You have to understand the points in the the instruction process where it is going to intersect with what you're trying to teach. Like, you know, for example, reading is taught using phonemic awareness and phonological awareness. Well, we know the phonological system is impacted in dialect. So when you get to the point where you're talking about voiceless TH and every little black kid in your class says with instead of with, then you know that those kids are perceiving that TH as an F. And in order to teach it, you are teaching them something new. You're not replacing what they're doing. They already have F for TH. Now we need a TH for TH. And so you need to know that at that point in the teaching process, dialect is going to impact what you're trying to teach. So a lot of it is about educating yourselves, about giving opportunity 
for kids to practice about recognizing when you need to help kids figure out what text says versus what they're doing orally. And that's what this is. It's the difference between oral language and text. And we need to recognize that that's what it is. We're gonna teach kids to read. We need to make them familiar with the language and the sound system in the text. Their oral language takes care of itself. They will continue to use it in their communities and we encourage that. But in school, in order to read, we need to teach them how to use the sound system and the language of the text in addition to what they're doing with dialect, not in place of. And I think that's really important. We are not trying to replace what you're doing. We're trying to teach you something in addition to that. In the same way with a Spanish speaking kid, you will speak Spanish. We will also teach you English. Now you're bilingual. You speak African-American English. We need to teach you classroom English. Now you're bi-dialectal. That's what we're trying to do. I like that. Yes, yes. And, and, and hopefully we can add the link to that article in the yes. description. Show for- notes. We will. We will in the show notes. I've been taking I've been taking notes and and marking what we want to make sure our listeners can go back to and reference. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Dr. Washington, this has been Thank awesome. You. This was a pleasure. Thank you so sure much. Was. Thank you. So, guys, look, she has dropped so many gems. I really need you to listen and hear what she's saying. Thank you so much for tuning in. Tune in next week where we'll continue to bring you lived experiences and more unfiltered conversations with experts in the field around all things Black and dyslexic. Make sure you subscribe and follow the Black and Dyslexic podcast, where we educate, empower, and equip Black and underrepresented minorities. The Black and Dyslexic podcast is partially funded by Morgan Cares and the Center for Urban Health Disparities Research and Innovation, awarded by the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities. The Black and Dyslexic podcast is sponsored by Dyslexia Advocation Incorporated, a 501c3 charitable organization located in Baltimore City, Maryland, whose mission is to equip parents of children with dyslexia and other language-based learning disabilities with the necessary tools to help their children become successful readers. You can find them on the web at www.soallcanread.org.